The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 till 11. And on the line we've got Bucket. Good morning. How are you? I'm very, very good indeed. And didn't we see a great, great event at the, over the weekend over in Perth? Yeah, all these Victorian government people who talk about we've got a 57 year, year contract with the to, to play the grand finals in, in Melbourne. I, I think the rest of Australia have proved that they can, can conduct a grand final, I think. Yeah, I think they did a wonderful job over there in Perth. Um, yeah, I think they did too. Not a fan of the night grand final. I think keep the day, but um, they did a great job. And Optus Stadium, there's no doubt about it, is a great venue. And I'm looking forward to maybe one day getting to go and watch football over there. Also on the line, we've got Mark Heenan. Good morning, Mark. Hello, Mitch. Hello, Bucket. Yes, it's been a fan-filled weekend of uh, AFL, and obviously we had the NRL preliminary finals, and we'll talk a little bit about later about the Melbourne Storm going down to Penrith Panthers. But, Bucket, uh, you know, you're the only one that can remember the 1964 grand final. We, Mitch and I went both alive then. What was it like back then compared to today? Well, basically, back in those days, yeah, when Melbourne was a power, you know, like in the 50s and early 60s, <clears throat> we used to go along the, along to the games hoping that Melbourne would get beaten because that's <laughs> how, how strong and how good they were. You know, it was just, it was just amazing. And then now it's all, all turned around and gone the other way. Everybody's barricading for Melbourne. Well, I think if I look at, look at the law of averages, they've won, they won 12 premierships between 1900 and 1964. So that's about a strike rate of one every five years almost, just a little bit more. But one every five years, I think I'd be taking that to the bank if that was the case these days. Oh, yes, that Melbourne side, yeah, that Melbourne side back in those days, although they didn't have the, yeah, the modern uh, amenities like, like they got, got now, that Melbourne side back in those days was a very, very classy sort of a side, I, I thought. Oh, well, I suppose when you've got guys like, uh, well, even Hassaman who left who was the incoming captain after Ron Barassi and then obviously Barassi and, you know, that part of those days, uh, the 1964, I, I don't think at the time they would have thought that Mel- that would be Melbourne's last premiership for the 57 years and now the drought's being broken. And, you know, just watching the weekend's game and seeing that in the burst of, a uh, you know, a few minutes and a blink of an eye, we saw the Melbourne team just... You know, when, when they were, when we saw Max Gorn put down by the smallest man on the ground, and I just thought to myself, what's going to turn here for Melbourne? You can't give up on them now. They've worked so hard to get to here. And then all of a sudden they won the game by 74 points. I mean, what an extraordinary turnaround, you know, going from 19 points down to 74 point winners. I mean, that's a 93 point turnaround. Yes, but basically, yeah, when you said the smallest man on the ground, that's Daniel who plays for the Fitzgerald Football Club. Caleb Daniel, yeah. Uh, yeah he gets a, a lot of the ball and a ton of the ball, but gee whiz, after that, after that you, you, you're never ever sure whether you'd put him in, in your best players or not. Well, that's right. And obviously, when you look at uh, Melbourne and you look at Petrarca, I mean, you, you think about this, that St Kilda could have picked Petrarca up at one stage and they've Gee, St Kilda's left a few players uh, on the trade table and they haven't, incidentally, the trade week's about to start as well. But the the amount of talent that's gone missing a little bit there, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. 
in some aspects. But to see what's happened there with Melbourne and, and to have players like Oliver, Petrarca, you know, obviously even on the weekend, the, one of the best stories I think was um, Bailey Fritch. I mean, his brother kicked 20 goals for Coldstream in yeah. a game this year. His dad yeah. played 300 games and he was, I think he was a captain of their last flag in 2001. And, you know, three or four years ago, Bailey Fritch was making his AFL journey and now he's a uh, premiership player, 85 games in and kicked six goals, the most since Darren Jarman since the uh, 98, I think, uh, grand final against North Melbourne. Yeah, was it St Kilda? St Kilda, sorry, ninety-seven. Yeah, ninety-seven. Yeah. yeah. I, I also, you also got to remember that Paul Ruse, like he set the foundations for you know, for this side because the three or four of those players we were playing with Melbourne at that time, like Petrarca and you know Gordon and those sort of guys. They've gone, they've gone right through the system, and basically when Goodwin took over, like many had doubts about him because he didn't start off really well, really too well. Well, as a coach at Bayge, he learnt all the way along, didn't he? Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, he was a captain at Adelaide as well in his later years, and yeah. I think they saw an eye for talent in terms of him going into the coaching ranks. But when when we look at Melbourne and the uh, the Passover, particularly with uh, Simon Goodwin uh, after Paul Ruse and that transition, I mean, I think that's the great thing about Paul Ruse is that he probably gets doesn't get the kudos at the moment, but in a lot of ways, he's, he's gone about it in a way where there's been not much about the ego. And I think when we've seen a lot of coaching transitions collapse, it, it's a lot about, you know, particularly with Carlton and Collingwood and, and those sorts of clubs, I think that's been more about the ego of the coach. The coach that's standing down thinks that they can go on and, and go and, and keep coaching. And, and then a lot of ways, whereas I think Paul Ruse, he knew when he came in that he had that transition to work into another coach. He did it at Sydney with John Longmire and look where they finished. They won the flag in 2012. So it has a, I think the coaching transition can work, but it's got to work with not as much ego like we've seen, like we've seen with Paul Ruse. I think also you've got to have the right material. When you look at the Melbourne, they only used like 34 players this year. They only used uh, uh, two first-year players. So they knew what they were picking and doing all the way through. On the other hand, you know, Footscray, they, they used 41 players and they also used uh, six first-year players, uh, basically, and they fell away. So many changes will have to be made to that uh, Footscray side, I think. Mm. Oh, I think so. But I, but I think also, too, you know, the, their travel situation, you know, they started in Hobart, they played the first final against Essendon, and then they went up to Brisbane, they beat Brisbane by a point then, and they went down to South Australia. In between, they they were hubbing in West Australia over over in Perth, and then they had to go back. And not so much they've been away from their families for such a long time, but the travel they've encountered, encountered they've done it the long way. And then, obviously, too, it's really like a five-week final series because they've got the two-week, uh, final build up um, yeah. in, between the preliminary final and the grand final. Yes, basically, and I, I think the, 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 the other thing, you know, like the, the way uh, you know Melbourne went went about it, you know, the, 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 like if one player was down a little bit, uh, the other player stepped up. But like those two Western Australian boys, boy, geez, they, they were good on the day, weren't they? You know, the, the boy in the ruck and the other boy on the halfback flank. You know, you've got to go out there and you've got to be really thorough in who you pick and what you pick. Now, the other question I've got to ask you, and I think a lot of people will be starting to take notice, coaching from the band 
boundary line or coaching from the box? It's a balance. I think I think when you need to go down to the boundary line that you should be there for your players. We've seen it with Simon Goodwin. We've yeah. seen it a little bit with a few other coaches. I think yeah. the first one that comes to mind is probably Chris Fagan from Brisbane. He coaches a lot from the boundary line. And then even at stages, I've seen a little bit of Ben Rutten. I think Nathan Buckley did it as well. So yeah. I think there's definitely some merit to do it. But I think from getting a bird's eye view, look at the game, you can't overlook being in the coach's box and, and watching it there for some portion of the game. So I don't know if I subscribe to being on the boundary line for the whole entirety of the match, but I think there's got to be an element there where you need to be there for the players. So maybe Simon Goodwin, I can't remember the time coding at the time, but when Melbourne was down by 19 points, that might be a time to just go to the, the boundary line. And I think that around that time that uh, Goodwin was there. So, Look, I think there's got some merits for, for being there for part of the match. I also think your assistant coaches should be spot on because back in the old days, all coaches coached from the boundary line, including Norm Smith, you know, who's turned out to be perhaps the best coach of all. Well, we probably didn't have the, um, the capabilities of having coaches' box being built and the facilities and yeah, those sorts true. of things. Wireless so headsets. I think I, Wireless headsets and uh, the technology aspect as well. So, yeah, a, lot, a lot's changed since then. I mean, remember too, Bucket, uh, you know, what about the, the version of a, a modern-day player coach? We used to have a modern-day player coach back then. I think it was even going back into the 80s. Was Alex Jezelenko one of the last um, player coaches or pl- playing coaches going around? I know I know it was in existence probably until at least 1980 to 81, yeah, and basically that, that, that trend has gone out into country football having a, a non-playing coach, although there's plenty of playing coaches around, isn't there? Yes, yeah, and you see it even locally with teams like Barwon Heads this year. I mean, I, that's not going to continue for next year, but they had um, you know Mitch Erverson as the playing coach and Troy Mitchell as the uh, as the non-playing coach, and we've seen it at other other clubs as well. So the transition into uh, playing coaches and non-playing coaches, I think it takes the stress out of one person. I think they've got to have a good support staff. And I think that that with Melbourne, you know, you look at Melbourne, you've got Mark Williams, you've got, you know, Alan Richardson. Um, they've got uh, such a supreme and someone that looks after their conditioning and Darren Burgess. So they've got a lot of good support support staff around them and a lot of them have actually coached in their own right. Now, Mark, I've got to ask you one question. No 50-metre penalties in the, in the grand final. How did that happen? Mm, yeah, it's a good point that you bring up. I, I remember Hawthorne and Melbourne going back a number of years ago in the 1987, I think, pre, prelim final and that they brought in the 50-metre rule for Gary Bacchanada kick after the siren for Hawthorne for Hawthorne against Melbourne, and that sealed Melbourne's hopes of not making a grand final. They did the next year, and then they got smashed by Hawthorne again. But, uh, look, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, I, I, I think I saw quite a few in some of the Melbourne-Geelong games. Um, but, it, yeah, it's, it's a really good point that you make. Like, but like basically, the umpires, yeah, every time that call was made, the umpires play, you know, spoke to the players and told them, you know, that, that wasn't necessary, but it's not a 50-metre penalty. Well, we no, no, and I and I think I think there's I think um, I think it was probably played in a lot of fairness the game. So it's oh, obviously yeah. there, there, I don't think there was any there, there was any real sort of um, crude acts or there wasn't any you know real portable incidents. No one there hasn't been anything from the tribunal. So I think 
uh, warranting a 50 metre penalty if it's not there. Well, yeah, that's a point. But it's a good observation. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. We better move three along, and I think. Million people, three and a half million people you know, watch the game on television. What do you think of that? That's really good, isn't it? Absolutely. But Mitch, Mitch can talk about the ratings, but I think it was... Um, it was, d- it was designed for it, but I'm all for what Mitchell's saying. If I bring it back to Melbourne, I think you've got to bring back the day event back. Yes, bring it back, and hopefully next year it will be back. Uh, there's certainly no guarantees with the climate that we live in at the moment, but uh, bring it back and make it a day event. But uh, well done to Perth, apart from Simon Goodwin getting cut off by Basil. But um, anyway, we better look at uh, a couple other things, including the trade period coming up, uh, particularly from Geelong's point of view. Any thoughts from either of you about that? Well, basically, it's going to be very interesting to see what Geelong done. You know, after after the Melbourne great victory at the weekend, you know, like it was that was no fluke against Geelong. They they took the, they put the Geelong to the sword, and as we said, it was aging and that. You know, like Melbourne didn't have one really veteran player playing playing in their side. Some of them been there a little while and everything like that. But but you you got to have the players who are willing to you know to go out there and do that little extra thing like like many of the Melbourne players did and I think Gordon is a real leader in doing that, doing fixing things in, in that area. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting situation for Geelong because we've seen the some of the assistants outgoing, you know, whether it's a Corey Enright, obviously Matthew Scarlett, Matthew Knights, they're all departing Geelong. But really when you look at Geelong and particularly their ruck stocks, I mean, I think Nathan Kruger, I'm not saying that he was going to be a dominant ruckman by anything by any stretch of the imagination, but when you got when you've got guys like, say, Stanley reaching 30 and above, and maybe, as I said, I think Geelong knows that that area of their game, that it's been an issue, oh, that's an interesting one for me. Nathan Kruger, to me, I think should be getting more game time, and he effectively wants to walk out on Geelong and join Collingwood. Uh, you've also got players like whether it's a Charlie Constable. I'm not sure... Um, particularly with um, Jordan Clark, is he is he another is he, he another guy that could be on the move as well back to Western Australia? Um, so you know, Geelong might not have all the uh, trading options. Particularly, I think you know the, their earliest picks are in the thirties, from what I understand. So yeah. um, they, they probably don't have a lot to deal with with trade, and and really in a lot of ways. It's probably penalised them over the last few few years where they've finished the, sort of the top end of the ladder and haven't got an ultimate premiership. So, you know, the, the trade-off of that is, or the the the, uh, the uh, unfortunate aspect of that is that they won't be able to get high picks in the trade. Yes, it's going to be mm-hmm. interesting what, what Geelong do because uh, the Geelong club have, uh, and, and a lot of supporters have been able to defend you know, the focus in charge of the list and everything like that. But boy, gee, you look at the way, way, way the other clubs are finding young players like Melbourne found those three young Western Australians and that, that's what you've got to do. You've got to go out and get those ready-made players, don't you? Absolutely. Well, we better move along because uh, we're going alphabetically and slowly through all of the teams in the competition. We did Adelaide and also touched on North Melbourne last week, but uh, today looking at the Brisbane Football Club. Yes, pretty interesting, the Brisbane Football Club. They've been a top four finish for the last three seasons. Seasons and then stalled. Yeah, you know, the, the, the coaching record. You know, finally, at last, I think Fagan's hit the hit the, hit the front fifty six 
52 in the first two weeks and out in straight sets wide it wasn't a very good look look when you see the, yeah, the forwards yeah, yeah, there's a bit of a problem on the list on the, on the list of the, of the forwards yeah, yeah you got likes of Cameron you got Danaher you got the yeah, they're both fighty type of players the, the like they got from Geelong you know, McCartan isn't it McCarthy whatever yeah like he finished up kicking 36-15 he was slightly better than the blokes that they brought into, into, the, into the Geelong club and gee whiz they got a lot of work that they did like in Brisbane I, I, I think yeah, what they got to do they've got to become a bit more urgent a couple of injuries seem to balance that side but if they can get that urgency back into that side that would be a far better side I think I think a lot of people forget too it wasn't that long ago when when Chris Fagan started the club or around that period that they were actually wooden spooners in 2017. So yeah. it's only four years ago now with a win-loss ratio of, you know, five wins, 17 losses. And I think they've come on a lot since then. I mean, they've got players like Zorko, uh, you know, whether it's a Harris Andrews, you know, even, um, you know, just, just, I think they've got, they've got a lot more options. Um, and it, look, it, in, in a lot of ways, I think you make, some interesting points with their current situation and how they've lost finals. Um, yeah. And it, it was it was, it was disappointing for them. It's going to be interesting to see how they go with their goals. I mean, with Joe Danher going up there, um, that was always seen as a, a recruit that I don't know whether they always wanted to take on, but he made his intention clear that he wanted to leave the bubble in Melbourne and, and get into state and, and obviously you know, play in a in a in an environment where he probably was going to get noticed all the time. So but, you know, just looking at some of their players that they've re-signed going ahead, you know, Adams, 2023, Zach Bailey, 2024, Jared Lyons, 2024, Lincoln McCarthy, 2024. I think a key player will be Humic Cluggage, and he's a key player that I mentioned before. Oscar McInerney, 2024, Cameron Rayner, he did his knee as well. He wasn't able to play this year. Daniel Rich is probably one of the older players on the list. He's, he's contracted until next year, Zorko. So um, players like Zorko, they'll, they'll want to get their... They want to stay there for the rest of the year. I think Mitch Robinson, he stayed on for one more season as well. I'm not sure if he'll go on beyond 2022. But I suppose the question is, Bucket, to you, is their premiership window closed? Oh, I think it is closed because basically they only used uh, 32 players this year. When, when, when they were in, in a bit of trouble and the, uh, people were starting to question that, their ability and that, you would have thought they would have used uh, you know, more than 32 players. And of those 32 players, there was three first-year players. But I, I, I don't think that, that's enough for, for a side that's on the fringe. Well, we've been yeah, we're just about out of time, yep. unfortunately, so we're going to have to go yeah. through to the final words. Sorry, it always goes quickly, doesn't it? Um, so I'll it give does. you a final word. You might want to weave in the NRL result, I think, uh, Mark. So, Bucket, starting with you. Oh, I think those Australian ladies, I watched that game yesterday, and by gee, the Indians, you know, really ran right over, over the top of, of the Australian ladies to beat a, like a 26 game winning run. So, there, 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 there's some young ladies in that Indian side, by gee, they're going to be around for many, many years, you know. They are pretty good, I think. And Mark? Yes, obviously the Melbourne Storm went down to Penrith in uh, the NRL prelim final. They've been the best team. The whole year, and they lost the Ryder Cup golf's on. Um, the Americans won there, and the Europe, the 
the rest of the world in town. Some great game yesterday from the Indians against the Aussies to win the game. Thank you very much to both of you. I'll talk to you again next week and we'll be able to have a look at the Carlton Football Club and talk a bit more about the summer sports. That's it from me for today, but Wes Jay is with you straight after the 11 o'clock news at 45 RPM. The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 to 11. Or search for Mitchell's Front Page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you get your podcasts.